too. Brute. Oh, Brute. You too, Brutus? At two. Brute. You too, my child. At two, Brute. And so, with those three fateful words, et tu Brute, William Shakespeare sealed the fate of Marcus Junius Brutus in his 1599 play, The Death of Julius Caesar. Today, Brutus, as he is simply come to be known, represents the arch-traitor, the Judas, or Benedict Arnold of the Roman era. The Latin expression, et tu Brute, is synonymous with the unexpected betrayal of a close friend and elicits powerful emotions of shock and anger. But the actual story of Brutus is much more convoluted, complicated and poignant than it seems. He was certainly reviled by successive Roman emperors and later European despots, keen to highlight his treachery for their own purposes. However, during the Renaissance, with the emergence of the Italian micro-republics, as well as the idea of the nation-state, writers such as Shakespeare and even artists such as Michelangelo took a much more sympathetic view of Brutus for reasons we shall see, and never has this dilemma been more relevant than today. Join us as we explore the life and times of Marcus Junius Brutus, traitor, or some would say, liberator of Rome. But before we begin, if you enjoy this content, please take a moment to support my work by making a small donation through the links on the podcast website, or better still, by signing up as a Patreon supporter, where you can communicate with me directly, engage with the Heroes and Legends community, and get better insights and even involvement in my work and future episodes. A video montage of this podcast also appears on our YouTube Heroes and Legends documentary channel. Please feel free to visit, like and share, and as always, thanks for listening. Heroes and Legends Documentary Channel. Not just the who, the what, the where, but also the why. Our story begins in about 509 BC. Rome had been ruled for some time by a hereditary series of kings known to us as the Tarquins. Now, despite their successful subjugation of neighbouring kingdoms and the expansion of their domain, the Tarquin kings were known to be tyrannical and nepotistic, murdering political rivals without trial or due process. The nobles were becoming increasingly nervous as the king stacked the Senate with his own personal lackeys and ruled without consultation, amassing wealth and station for his own family members at the expense of all the others. It all came to a head when one of the king's sons raped a virtuous and respectable noblewoman called Lucretia, who was married to a loyal vassal of his father and then threatened to kill her and smear her good name if she resisted. Lucretia, however, afterwards went straight to her father and husband, told them the whole story, and swore them to avenge her honour, before there and then plunging a knife into her own heart. Present at the shocking event was one of her kinsmen, Lucius Junius Brutus, 
whose own brother had been recently put to death by the king, and he had himself only narrowly avoided his own execution by faking being a dimwit, from which the Latin word brutus is derived. Now, while I'm on the subject of Latin, I'm going to go against my usual practice and refer to the names of the protagonists of our story by their common English pronunciation, for ease of understanding by the average viewer who is not a scholar of linguistics. Those of you who are Latin Puritans, feel free to hate on me in the comment section, but I suspect most viewers would rather I say Julius Caesar rather than Julius Caesar. So I'm just going to go with that in this video. I digress. Anyway, Lucius Brutus and his good mate Lucius Tarquinius Collatinus, Lucretia's distraught and devoted husband, now a widower, swore to topple the government and execute the king and his entire family with extreme prejudice. Lucius Brutus went one step further and swore that he would never abide another king ruling over his homeland ever again, and promptly went about extracting the same oath from others that joined their cause. These two, then, were effectively the founding fathers of the new Roman Republic. So, with the rebellion in full swing, other disgruntled nobles quickly jumped on board, and the result was a civil war that succeeded in its aims, with the establishment of a republic, a res publica, supposedly a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, etc. But it was still, for all intents and purposes, basically just an oligarchy of nobles ruling over the commoners. The problem of who was going to call the shots was solved by the patrician senators yearly electing two magistrates from among them who would be called consuls and who would wield executive power balanced between them for strict term limits set by the senate who would provide the legislative arm of the government. The exiled Tarquin dynasty wasn't going to go away that easily, however, and it wasn't long before their agents were bribing various locals to subvert the new republic, including two of Brutus' own sons and his wife's brothers. When their involvement in the conspiracy was discovered, Lucius Junius Brutus, in one of the earliest examples of Roman Stoic virtue, had them all publicly executed broken in his grief, but cementing his place in Roman history as a man prepared to sacrifice even his own sons to the idea of a kingless republic. He went on to die a heroic death in a suicidal cavalry charge soon after, that vanquished the last of the Tarquin forces threatening to overturn the fledgling republic. Now, it wasn't long before the young city-state of Rome found itself in economic and political turmoil. The aristocracy, or the patricians, who ran the Senate, along with their consuls, passed laws and went on a considerable land and cash grab that significantly impacted the common folk, known as the plebs, or plebeians. Roman social structure was set up in such a way that commoners were heavily dependent on the patronage of their rulers and landlords and lacked any political or judicial representation when they had a grievance. Their exploitation by the upper classes became so bad that they inevitably revolted and after fierce negotiations 
had managed to force the establishment of both a judicial council and political representation that would be headed by the newly established office of tribune. In the beginning, at least, a tribune was a respected commoner elected by fellow commoners whose position was untouchable by the Senate during their fixed term in that role. Molesting the work of a tribune or causing their harm was punishable by death, even to a consul, and a tribune had the power to call a Senate hearing, present legislation, and even veto laws passed by the Senate if they thought it was detrimental to the interests of the common people. It was quite a progressive and elegant political idea for its time that would eventually come to be subverted, but for a time at least, it worked. Nevertheless, this two-faceted system of government quickly established an us-versus-them mentality within the Roman political process, giving significant voice, perhaps for the first time, to ordinary people in the governance of their state. While you might think that the patrician ruling class would be consistently conservative, elitist and antagonistic to the representation of commoners in government, who themselves usually called for a progressive, reformist and welfare agenda, politics in Rome differed somewhat from ours in that there were no official political parties as we know them today. Instead, individual aristocrat senators ambitious to promote their own political aspirations and perhaps lacking support from among their own fellow patricians, might appeal to the affection of the masses by supporting legislation introduced by tribunes or by themselves enacting populist reforms. While some of them may have been idealists and romantics, the truth of it was that, for the most part, they were rich, entitled toffs passing themselves off as champions of the underdog. Come to think of it, maybe it's not so unlike today after all. In any case, this was a successful tactic, not only among the disaffected urban poor, but also among discharged soldiers who lacked land and a steady income after leaving the army. Following the military reforms of Marius in 107 BC, which reorganised the army structure and tied soldiers more closely to the commander, a savvy general who promised his soldiers plots of land, tax incentives and other perks, such as slaves and jobs when they retired, might find himself so popular that the Senate couldn't refuse to promote him, especially if he had a fanatically loyal army at his back. Are you with me? Fast forward a few centuries to 60 BC, and despite a number of serious exceptions that would take hours to explore, this system of checks and balances on individual power was still largely in place. Three men now held sway in a delicate balance of power that was just about to unravel. Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus, Marcus Licinius Crassus, and the governor of Cisalpine Gaul, Gaius Julius Caesar. Between them, they carried a lot of clout in the Senate by virtue of their well-established reputations for pushing the reformist agenda of the common people and by their military exploits. The fact that they had essentially carved up the Republic between them, 
were hugely popular and also capable of quickly mobilising substantial private armies made the other senators very nervous and concerned that any one of them might try to go rogue. Now, I mentioned earlier that there weren't any political parties in the sense that we have today, but the conservative, anti-reform-minded senators were commonly referred to as the optimates, roughly translated to mean supportive of the best ones. Take that as a euphemism for those born to rule. Progressives, meanwhile, were generally referred to as populares, those supportive of the people, perhaps loosely akin to modern Democrats in the US, Labour in Britain, or a kind of populist-proto-socialist fusion. It's an oversimplification, to be sure, but the idea of conservative versus progressive will have to do for the purposes of introduction to Roman politics. Some years earlier, coups and civil war had erupted in Rome owing to the harsh consulship of Sulla, who twice illegally marched his troops into the city to the horror of its inhabitants to suppress the populares uprisings of his co-consul Marius and he soon had himself appointed as dictator, which is the Latin word for one who gives orders. This was a temporary form of supreme rulership, only rarely granted by the Senate, and only then for short periods during emergencies. Wielding this unchallenged power, he promptly capitalised on it by having a large number of his opponents in the Senate executed and their properties forfeited. He then went on to pass laws severely curtailing the power of the people's tribunes while simultaneously cementing greater authority within the conservative aspect of the Senate. The optimates and their champion Sulla, despite their heightened power, were seemingly indifferent to the rising anger of the increasingly disenfranchised populace. The purges and civil war had drained the Republic's coffers and the subsequent taxation burden caused many farmers in the provinces to bankrupt and abandon their holdings to move to the city, swelling the slums of the urban homeless, which would quickly rise into mobs when provoked. Nevertheless, having exterminated all opposition and returned hardline conservative power to the Senate, Sulla, astonishingly, resigned his dictatorship at the expiration of his term and retired to the countryside in 79 BC, dying of alcohol, womanising and overindulgence-related illnesses just one year later, as was befitting of a proper Roman. During his purges, Caesar, who was closely connected to Sulla's opponents through his father's family, had all his property confiscated, losing his social standing and political appointments in the process and was only spared execution by the intercession of his mother's family and the city's religious leaders. Hastily leaving to get off Sulla's radar, Caesar joined the army, serving with distinction, and only returned back to Rome, totally broke, at the age of 38 years old. Pompey, meanwhile, was already long a professional soldier, having joined the army from a young age and participating in numerous conflicts both abroad and in Italy. He was considered to be the most gifted general in Rome at the time, yet still too young to be a senator or a consul, and we are told looked so youthful that he couldn't even grow a proper beard. 
Nevertheless, so audacious was he that risking the ire of the ever-jealous Sulla and demanding a celebratory triumph for his many victories, despite lacking the station, he held one for himself anyway, paid out of his own pocket, to the amusement and bewilderment of many Romans when his procession of captured elephants couldn't get through the city gate. It seems that, unlike battles, planning parties wasn't his forte. That didn't deter him, however, and he held another two in the course of his career, the final one being the most spectacular triumph ever seen in Rome to that point. Crassus, on the other hand, also a general of no small merit under his old boss Sulla, had subsequently earned himself a reputation as a shrewd and entrepreneurial property speculator and had amassed such wealth in his business dealings that he was easily and by far the richest man in Rome at the time and now keen to put that cash to good use in the promotion of a political career. Both he and Pompey would eventually pour substantial amounts of cash into a network of dependents and debtors in the Senate that, garnering votes in support of their bids for consulship, first in 70 and then again in 55 BC, would be a walk in the park. Anyway, in the power vacuum that resulted after Sulla's death, Populares senators that had managed to survive the purges now began a campaign to reverse the imbalance of power and to restore the office of tribune to its rightful authority, including by the use of force. The optimates, now comfortably in charge, easily suppressed any attempt to do so, and in the military confrontations that followed, they chased down Populares leaders, some of whom had raised armies, all across Italy. In one such campaign, Pompey, who was, as far as we can tell, politically neutral, or shall we say, independently motivated, and significantly more interested in personal military glory than getting fat in the Senate, was assigned to lead an assault against one of the Populares' senior commanders, Marcus Junius Brutus Sr., the father of our main protagonist and a recent tribune of the people who was holed up in a fort in the north of the country. It's not insignificant that Brutus Sr. was an ex-tribune. The Brutus family were, by now, legendary champions of the pure ideals of the Republic, and Brutus Sr. had himself married Servilia, a descendant of a long line of patriotic nobles that had a similar reputation for both sacrificing everything for Rome as well as knocking off tyrants with concealed daggers. You see where I'm going with this. Anyway, when Pompey caught up with him, Brutus Sr. apparently put up a stiff resistance, but ultimately surrendered to avoid a bloodbath among his countrymen. But in reports that are sketchy, Pompey, having given him safe passage, then turned around and had him summarily executed in contravention to his rights under law and the terms of his capitulation. This was a bad look for both Pompey and the Senate, and only served to aggravate ordinary people. It was 77 BC. Now, when his dad was murdered, Brutus Jr. was only eight years old, but stories of his father's valour, honourable conduct and unjust murder would have certainly affected him, and you would think served to fester a simmering hatred against Pompey, well known as a ruthless butcher during his time in the army. 
His mother Servilia, who was raised in the conservative and stoic household of Cato the Younger, to whom she was a half-sister, remarried soon after, to a consul no less, and had another couple of kids before this husband died too in 62 BC. She was hardly the vulnerable widow, however, having inherited massive estates and a fortune of her own through her illustrious ancestors, and she would turn out to be quite the power broker over the ensuing years, marrying all her kids off into powerful patrician families. But we'll get back to mum later. Having sorted out the populares agitators in Italy, Pompey was soon dispatched to Hispania to deal with those that managed to escape. He had a rough time of it, though, and spent the next eight years dealing with guerrilla campaigns that were so successful he quickly ran out of cash, forcing him to beg the Senate to send money and reinforcements. Ultimately, though, by 72 BC, he had finally got the upper hand and Hispania was firmly back under Senate control. While this was going on, Spartacus, the rebel gladiator, burst onto the scene with his ragtag army of slaves and warriors wreaking havoc through the countryside with their remarkably effective fighting style. They were on their way south, hoping to escape from the mainland, kicking butt wherever they went. The Senate hurriedly appointed Crassus to sort them out and gave him a command of eight legions, but nervous, he requested backup, so Pompey, having just mopped up Hispania, was recalled with his legions to help him out. Realising that Pompey would get all the credit, Crassus suddenly found his courage and hit the turbo, managing to engage the rebels and crushing them in a pitched battle just before Pompey got on the scene to mop up the stragglers. Incidentally, then claiming it was really he that sorted out the problem, which really rubbed Crassus the wrong way. I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! Nevertheless, Pompey soon left Rome again, with orders to wipe out the hordes of pirates that were plaguing the Mediterranean, which he did with great skill and assiduity, and was thereafter given the task of taking over the ongoing wars of conquest in the Near East in modern-day Turkey and Syria, which he also brought to a close within a decade to the great acclaim of the people, but also the rising suspicion of senators, particularly the optimates, though Pompey had never shown any signs of antagonism to them at that point. Meanwhile, Caesar was still living in relative poverty and obscurity in Rome, working as a lawyer advocate, honing his oratorial skills and prosecuting corrupt officials. He eventually began to climb the political ladder, scored a couple of prestigious appointments and through sheer bribery, wheeling and dealing over the next decade, manoeuvred his way to a small governorship position in Hispania. By 60 BC, though, he was on his way back to Rome, having conquered a couple of Celtic tribes on the way back and cashing up his soldiers with the spoils, earning their affection and loyalty in the process, and he hoped a triumph back in Rome. But despite his rising prominence, he was heavily in debt, owing to the huge bribery, or shall we say investment, in his political promotion. Fortunately, Crassus, back home in Rome, took a shine to him and paid off his considerable debts, 
seeing in the ambitious and relentless Caesar a potential future opponent and rival to Pompey that he could rely on. He supported Caesar's bid for consul in 59 BC, which was a ticket to both cash and glory, and Caesar, in turn, approached Pompey to try and reconcile his differences with Crassus. Pompey was going to run for consul himself, but he was forced to choose between celebrating a triumph or running for consul. Pompey chose to party. Caesar, on the other hand, faced with the same dilemma, ran for consul and won, with a little help from his two new friends. The Senate, and Cato in particular, tried to obstruct and stifle Caesar's populist aspirations at every turn, but his two buddies eventually got him a governorship in both Illyria and the border regions of Gaul. Caesar sweetened the deal by offering his daughter Julia to Pompey as a wife, and the three amigos now set about planning to carve up Roman territory between them, forming what is now known as the First Triumvirate. It was around this time that Caesar, despite being married, began a passionate love affair with Servilia, Brutus' mother. She was a cashed-up and feisty widow, and apparently a real glamour. When her half-brother Cato found out, he was furious. Cato and his mentor Cicero, the famous orator, were the central optimates figure in the Senate. And here now was Caesar, an openly popularis agitator, schmoozing his way into a consulship and cushy governorship, all the while getting jiggy with Cato's sister right under his nose. Now, the cynical among you might think that he was just a player, making hay with Sevilla just to humiliate Cato. But the truth of it was that they maintained their relationship right up until Caesar's death, passing love notes to one another on a regular basis, even when Caesar was away on campaign or sitting in the Senate. Brutus, now in his twenties, considered his uncle Cato, the incorruptible, stoic and puritanically religious Republican, to be his mentor, and so Brutus' natural inclinations towards his mum's new squeeze was just what you might expect. Hold that thought because we'll come back to this thread later. So poor Cato now found himself at odds with his own half-sister, who had it bad for Caesar, and his attempts to hold Caesar accountable for his consular, shall we say, irregularities and backroom deals were being foiled by Caesar's buddies Pompey and Crassus. Now, it has to be said that both Caesar and Pompey employed bully boy tactics on anyone attempting to investigate or publicly decry their occasionally shady, though often publicly benevolent activities, and they frequently hired thugs to roam the streets of the city and beat up legally appointed investigators. Caesar at one time had Cato dragged out of the Senate and thrown in jail, but no doubt Servilia managed to smooth over his temper, and Cato was soon back in the Senate, fuming, but gaining the sympathy of other senators who were starting to see in Caesar a popularis reincarnation of Sulla. But Caesar wasn't about to let Cato reign on his parade, so he wrangled the Senate into posting him to the governorship of Cyprus, a long, long way from Rome. Anyway, 
Caesar managed to have his tenure as governor in the north extended for five more years. Surprise, surprise, which gave him all the time in the world to get stuck into the Gauls. Accounts vary, but over the course of his Gallic campaign, Caesar's legions supposedly killed a million Celtic people, took another million into slavery, and subjugated the rest into a peace-loving, tax-paying province of Rome. He was now a superstar, and his army, laden with booty, were totally devoted to him. Pompey, meanwhile, was getting a bit miffed at all the attention Caesar was getting, and when his wife Julia, Caesar's daughter, died in childbirth in 54 BC while Caesar was still in Britain, cracks began to appear in their relationship. Crassus, well cashed up but hungry for glory. Managed to convince the Senate to post him to Syria as governor at the end of his consulship, where he wanted to outshine his co-triumvirs and raise an army to conquer the noisy and turbulent Parthians in the east, despite their having a treaty in place with them. Crassus was convinced that he could bring back more booty than Caesar was hauling in from Gaul. Unfortunately for Crassus, the Parthian cavalry. Completely annihilated his seven legions of heavy infantry in the hot deserts of Mesopotamia during the Battle of Carrhae, and barely a soldier made it back to Rome alive. Crassus himself being killed in the disaster. This only served to fracture the relationship of Caesar and Pompey even more, and when Cato returned from his tenure on Cyprus. He saw the possibility of the two mutually destructing, and agitated for Caesar to be recalled from Gaul to face charges of corruption in the Senate. The mood in the capital clearly began to reflect the ominous spectre of a coming civil war between Caesar and Pompey, neither of whom would stomach playing second fiddle to the other, despite being civilized in their exchanges up till now. Nevertheless, the city of Rome. Began to descend into ever deeper corruption and scandal, as thugs roamed the streets and prominent figures manoeuvred their allegiances back and forward between the two of them, unsure of who to support. Caesar was now recalled to give up his post in Gaul, surrender his troops, and return to Rome. He did return a significant number of soldiers that were lent to him by Pompey, full knowing that they might be used against him. And in a show of goodwill, he even generously loaded them with gifts. Caesar was having such a good time eating croissants and drinking Beaujolais. He even offered to reduce the size of his forces if the Senate would just let him finish his subjugation of the remaining Gallic territories by extending his tenure as governor. The Senate flatly refused, and after repeated negotiations and conciliation attempts by Caesar to disarm failed, the Senate declared him an enemy of the state, which triggered his all-or-nothing gamble and crossing of the Rubicon on the 10th of January 49 BC at the head of the 13th Legion. Pompey was hurriedly elected sole consul and given full command to raise an army to oppose him. But his recruits were raw and unprepared, despite hugely outnumbering Caesar's veterans. So they withdrew to the south, hoping to better prepare. But Caesar pursued them rapidly, and they were forced to evacuate to Greece. Now, before we go on, 
Let's return for a moment to Marcus Junius Brutus so we can fit him into this running series of events and get a better understanding of where he stood during these momentous times. You recall that his mentor was Cato the Younger, his mother's half-brother. When Cato was posted to Cyprus in 58 BC, thanks to Caesar, Brutus accompanied his uncle and served as a financial consultant, treasurer of sorts and director of the Mint, so diligently that a substantial profit was recorded in the province, earning them both high praise from the Senate both for their work but especially for their integrity. During the next few years, he married the daughter of a conservative consul, accompanying him to Cilicia, where he in turn assisted in the governorship, but now also began a side hustle, engaged in money lending. This business venture led to some criticism back home of extortionate lending practices under high interest rates that then required strong-arm tactics to collect upon. It's interesting to note that Caesar had early on supported Brutus for further promotion within the Senate and even offered him to join the campaign in Gaul as his legate. But Brutus refused and travelled with his father-in-law to Cilicia instead. We have to wonder why he would refuse so generous an opportunity to develop his career under the tutelage of a man clearly in the ascendant to travel to a far-flung province playing second fiddle to his father-in-law. Anyway, perhaps it tells us a little bit about what he really thought about Caesar. Returning home from Cyprus, the open brawling that was beginning to occur between supporters of Pompey and supporters of Caesar saw Brutus nevertheless begin to write pamphlets critical of Pompey, whom he clearly viewed as having tyrannical tendencies. When the Senate proposed to elect him sole consul in 52 BC, Brutus wrote in a scathing missive, It is better to rule no one than to be another man's slave, for one can live honourably without power, but to live as a slave is impossible. His mentor Cato, however, was much more pragmatic and supported Pompey's dictatorship in what he referred to as something better than nothing. Nevertheless, this didn't stop Brutus cooperating with Pompey in the defence trial of his father-in-law, who had been meanwhile accused of treason, but whom they together successfully defended. This and other similar court cases suggested that Brutus was prepared to overlook even his own individual grievances in pursuit of the greater objective, which for him was almost always the maintenance of the ideals of the Republic, and the prevention of despotism. When war eventually broke out in January of 49 BC, Brutus now had to choose between Pompey, his father's killer, or Caesar, his mother's lover. The fact that he chose Pompey is perhaps not insignificant, and we'll expand upon that later, but suffice it to say, Caesar's illegal crossing into Rome with his legion may have triggered the same concerns he originally had about Pompey. Pompey had the legitimate support of the Senate, and in particular, Brutus's mentors, Cato, Cicero, and other conservatives. So it seems he had little choice but to unwillingly join the side of his father's killer. His reluctance was obvious, however, for the delay in which he joined up with their forces, making a side trip to the east and only arriving in Greece some months later. 
It's not known whether he participated in the fighting and Pompey's ultimately disastrous defeat at the Battle of Pharsalus, but Caesar, probably out of love for Sevilia, ordered his troops not to harm or molest Brutus, even if he resisted arrest and escaped, which he did, only to write to Caesar while in hiding in Larissa, asking for clemency. You may raise an eyebrow, but Caesar was by now well known for his benevolent treatment of political rivals, and he accepted Brutus and his companions into his camp with no ill feeling. Furthermore, when he left for Africa in pursuit of Pompey and Cato, he astonishingly entrusted Brutus with the governorship of his previous province of Cisalpine Gaul. Brutus appears to himself have been appreciative of this generosity and spent much of his time in the following months trying to reconcile the remaining followers of both Pompey and Caesar for the good of the Republic. Let this be an end to division and civil strife. Caesar, for his part, granted Brutus the privilege of giving Cato's eulogy after his suicide in North Africa. In an interesting side note, In a move that was peculiar for its time, Brutus now decided to divorce his wife Claudia without giving good reason and instead marry his cousin Porcia to the great annoyance of his mother. Porcia was the daughter of Cato and it may be that Brutus was trying to honour his mentor by taking his daughter into his own house or it may be that he was just trying to style himself as Cato's legitimate political heir thereby signalling his independence from both the influence of his mother as well as her lover, Caesar. In any case, Brutus' star was now rising and his earnest attempts at diffusing political tension in the Senate increasingly painted him as a man of integrity after the mode of Cato. There was now some talk of his election to a praetorship and possibly even a consulship within the next couple of years. So politically, financially and personally, he was in a very good place. But by late 45 BC, Caesar was starting to get on the nose. He was becoming increasingly authoritarian, vetoing the Senate and making sweeping reforms of everything from the free grain quota to the calendar system. He was tolerating crowns being placed upon his statues and even put to death a couple of tribunes who had dared to remove them. If you recall, the life of a tribune was sacrosanct. To kill one was an automatic death sentence. Historically, one of the first things tyrants did was to eliminate tribunes, as they were often a thorn in their side. So this wasn't a good look. Caesar now had his seat in the Senate covered in gold, resembling a throne. He wore red shoes that was the custom of the old kings. He regularly dressed in triumphal garb, even during inappropriate times. And he now refused to rise from his seat to receive senators. Things really started to get bad with his consecutive elections as dictator, first for a year, then ten, then for life, which now made him a king in everything but name. As it so often happens, graffiti soon began to appear in the streets, reminding people of Brutus' illustrious ancestors and leaving no doubt that he was falling short of the mark 
and that he was being expected to act. There was a clear insinuation that the ancient line of Brutus, defenders of the Republic, had now become nothing more than lackeys. The joke was not lost on Marcus Junius Brutus, and he became increasingly agitated. To top it off, a stunt pulled by Marcus Antonius, Caesar's co-consul and second-in-command during the Lupercalia festival, a festival held in honour of the she-wolf that suckled Rome's founders, Romulus and Remus, drove the crowd wild with delight, but was interpreted with cynical derision by the senators. During this religious procession, in front of a huge crowd, Marcus Antonius pulled out a crown and placed it upon Caesar's head. The crowd groaned. Caesar removed it and handed it back in refusal, whereupon the crowd erupted in cheers. Once again, it was offered to him, and once again, Caesar refused it. The crowd cheered even louder. Whose idea was this bit of public theatre? Where did Marcus Antonius get the crown? What was it meant to convey? Shakespeare suggests to us that, in Mark Antony's eventual eulogy to him, that Caesar was demonstrating his loyalty to the ideals of the Republic, and therefore affirming the identity of all present as citizens of that state, with himself simply as the first among them, rather than his being their master. To Romans, identity was everything, but senators such as Cicero, who wrote about the event, and many others at the time, viewed it, at best, as a theatrical mock-up of his supposed devotion to the Republic, and at worse, as a subtle test of public response to see if they would be willing to accept his kingship. Caesar not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is oft interred with their bones. So let it be with Caesar. The noble Brutus hath told you Caesar was ambitious. If it was so, it was a grievous fault. And grievously hath Caesar answered it. Here, under leave of Brutus and the rest, for Brutus is an honourable man... So are they all, all honourable men. Come I to speak in Caesar's funeral. He was my friend. Faithful and just to me. But Brutus says he was ambitious. And Brutus is an honourable man. He hath brought many captives home to Rome, whose ransoms did the general coffers fill. Did this in Caesar seem ambitious? When at the poor have cried... Caesar hath wept. Ambition should be made of sterner stuff. Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honourable man. You all did see that on the Lupercal I thrice presented him a kingly crown, which he did thrice refuse. Was this ambition? Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and sure, he is an honourable man. I speak not to disprove what Brutus spoke, but here I am to speak what I do know. You all did love him once. 
Not without cause. What cause withholds you then to mourn for him? Judgment, thou art fled to brutish beasts, and men have lost their reason. Bear with me, my heart is in the coffin now with Caesar. And I must pause till it come back to me. The Roman author Sallust once wrote that only a few prefer liberty. The majority seek nothing more than fair masters. It's been suggested that Caesar may have been testing that principle with the crown incident. In any case, the response of the crowd indicated to the now increasingly marginalised and timid senators that the ancient ideals of liberty and democracy were still important to the people, so they judged that any action to remove Caesar under the pretext of defending their liberty would gain their support. Of course, it wouldn't be a stretch to conclude that the majority of the over 60 senators who now conspired to kill him hardly had the lofty ideals of liberty in their bosom. They were, as has been repeatedly said, an aristocratic oligarchy who reserved the process of democracy largely for themselves, and even then were quick to engage in subterfuge, scandal and assassination to promote their own careers. Cicero later tells us that perhaps the sole exception to this was Marcus Junius Brutus, now increasingly feeling the sting of graffiti and murmurings throughout the city, denigrating his complicity with tyranny in contrast to his venerated ancestors. When he sided with Pompey during the Civil War, it was solely because of the legitimacy of Pompey's appointment by the Senate, and in particular, the Optimates leadership that he was influenced by. This is an important point to consider. Brutus overcame his own hatred and simmering wish for vengeance on Pompey for the greater ideals of the state. But here he was now, the trusted accomplice of a man who had no checks on his power and was increasingly showing signs of absolutism that would soon be impossible to halt. Caesar was planning to depart for a new campaign in the east and would be surrounded by his soldiers, making it impossible to act against him once outside the city. Time was of the essence. But personal reputation wasn't just about how you filled the shoes of your ancestors. Loyalty, trustworthiness and gratitude also strongly defined your public perception. Caesar, well known for his generosity and clemency towards his Roman opponents, had spared Brutus' life and even given him privileges way in excess of what his experience or station merited not because they were close, as has often been suggested, but because of his ongoing relationship with Brutus' mother. There is no evidence to suggest that they were particularly affectionate. Brutus' divorce and subsequent marriage to Cato's daughter Porcia is strong evidence of their divergent political positions, and this act would have no doubt irked Caesar and we certainly know it bothered Brutus' mother, Sevilia. And this may now be an appropriate time to throw a further spanner in the works 
by introducing a character that may explain the notions of supposed affection between Caesar and Brutus. You see, there was another Brutus in the Senate, a cousin of Marcus Junius Brutus, called Decimus Junius Brutus Albinus. Decimus Junius Brutus descended from an illustrious line of consuls and popular reformers, and his political leanings, in contrast to his cousin, were definitely in line with Caesar's own. He served directly under Caesar during the Gallic campaigns, where he was entrusted with command of a fleet, destroying the maritime forces of the Veneti tribe. He then accompanied Caesar in his campaign deep into Gaul and took part in the war against Vercingetorix in 52 BC. When the civil war eventually broke out, Decimus, again unlike his cousin, chose Caesar's side and served with distinction, building an entire fleet from scratch and blockading Pompey's forces stationed in Massilia, or modern Marseille, eventually forcing their capitulation in 49 BC. Afterwards, Decimus was designated a proprietor by Caesar himself and was earmarked for the prestigious governorship of his old jaunt Cisalpine Gaul soon after. Several sources of the time relate to us that, on a number of occasions, Caesar had publicly said that he loved Decimus like a son. And as it turns out, when Caesar's will was eventually read out in public, Decimus was named as a direct heir second only to Octavian. And yet, by 44 BC, with the civil war barely over, he had totally flipped sides and was one of the key conspirators in the plot to assassinate him. There has been some suggestion that the primary reason was Caesar's refusal to honour his contribution to victory by denying him a triumph, along with other suitable honours, despite promises of a future cushy governorship. So, on the Ides of March, 44 BC, when Caesar's wife Calpurnia told her husband of the foreboding dreams she had just experienced, Caesar acceded to her pleading to stay home that day and not attend the Senate meeting being called in the Theatre of Pompey. It was Decimus and not Marcus who went to his home and persuaded Caesar that he was misreading the dream omens and cajoled him to come to the fateful meeting. Only someone who was very close to him would have that kind of influence. Marcus Junius Brutus, as the son of Caesar's lover, would never have shown his face in the house, which would have certainly upset Calpurnia. Not only that, but we need to remember that Decimus, Cassius and the inner circle of conspirators had additionally wanted to assassinate Marcus Antonius and others close to Caesar. But Marcus Junius Brutus dissuaded them from murdering anyone else, not wanting the act to come across as a factional purge, but purely as the justifiable execution of a tyrant. Ironically, this moral stance would be their undoing, as Marcus Antonius, initially conciliatory, would go on to whip up popular dissent against the conspirators, himself participating in the civil war against them, and then later against Octavian. History suggests to us that being merciful and sparing one's enemies often backfires in the long run. 
We can see how the real treachery here belongs to Decimus, being well loved and publicly so by Caesar, and not so much to Marcus Junius Brutus, whose only substantial link to Caesar was through his mother's illicit, though long-standing, love affair with him. Some rumours have also persisted that Servilia even pimped off Brutus' sister to Caesar, which, if true, would hardly position Marcus Junius Brutus as a close and affectionate companion. Caesar, the consummate political player, would hardly be stupid enough to ignore all of these aggravating factors and just assume Marcus Junius Brutus' unswerving loyalty. It may have been a case of keeping your friends close and your potential enemies closer. Decimus Junius Brutus, on the other hand, is an entirely different proposition and fits perfectly into the model of outrage that would be directed at a well-loved heir who shockingly and petulantly betrayed his benefactor. When the conspirators began recruiting accomplices, they found that a substantial number that came across to them were from Caesar's own inner circle, as well as from among the Populares faction that largely benefited from all of Caesar's social policies. Many were dissatisfied with their own lack of promotion, or the promotion of Pompey supporters over their own. Even soldiers who benefited from Caesar's reforms were prepared to come over, so long as the reforms themselves were not repealed afterward. Much discussion centred on the site where the deed would be done, with the soldiers among them advocating options such as dark alleyways, where the efficiency and stealth factors were safest. But Marcus Junius Brutus insisted it be done in public, with full openness and senatorial participation, to lend greater legitimacy to their act in the eyes of the public. When the appointed time came, sources suggest to us that Decimus was among the first to stab Caesar and Marcus the last. And perhaps this is why the famous et tu brute, or the Greek variant, Kaisu technon, and you too, my child, has been ascribed to the latter rather than the former. Ironically, these same sources, written some time after the event, and not by eyewitnesses, suggest that Caesar simply sunk to the floor, groaning as he died, and actually said nothing, covering his face as his life ebbed away. Some scholars have suggested that almost all of Caesar's 23 stab wounds were superficial, and that he would certainly be capable of uttering such words, but we may never know the truth. In any case, when Shakespeare wrote the phrase into his play, he may himself have been ripping off an earlier play by Richard Eads, and the whole thing appears to be simply a dramatic device to play on our emotions. Shakespeare even got Decimus' name wrong, spelling it Decius in the play, so it wouldn't be a stretch to assume that he may have blurred the distinction of the characters to fit his storyline as well. In the aftermath, the conspirators initially lay low. Servilia, for her part, was almost certainly unaware of their plans, but she now swung into action and worked both behind the scenes and formally with the Senate to secure the safety of her family members, while the conspirators, now titling themselves Liberatores, worked to formulate a reconciliation with those who opposed them, 
by ratifying the reforms instigated by Caesar and by offering him a public funeral. The other remaining consul in the city approved their activities and there is evidence of reasonable public support, despite the riot that followed the famous reading of Caesar's will. For their part, the Liberatores continued garnering support as they outlined their justification in pamphlets and public speeches and did their utmost to placate the concerns of reformists as well as other Caesar supporters. But Marcus Antonius, soon to be eclipsed politically by the return of Octavian from the provinces, quickly manoeuvred against them, perhaps not so much out of grief for Caesar, but rather anxious not to be sidelined by Octavian, who was expected to just walk in and fill the power vacuum by virtue of his inheritance of Caesar's titles. So he contrived to relieve the liberatores of any governorships and judicial positions they held, and under the pretense of their safety, had them appointed to ministerial positions of trade out in the provinces, well out of his way, while he took charge of the treasury and gathered support for himself throughout Italia. Brutus was duly assigned to Crete, where he was hailed as a hero, and Cassius similarly to Syria. Decimus, on the other hand, refused to relinquish his governorship of Cisalpine Gaul due to the irregularity of the means in which Marcus Antonius bypassed the Senate to effect his dismissal. So he dug in to face him. You see, Marcus Antonius' term as consul was now coming to a close, and it was customary for the Senate to appoint the outgoing consuls as governors in Macedonia and Syria but it was looking increasingly like Brutus and Cassius were making lots of friends there, so he headed north instead under the pretext of expelling Decimus, but actually all the while planning to take the province for himself and thus keeping close to the action back in Rome. Meanwhile, the 19-year-old Octavian finally landed in Italia, only to be denied the inheritance payout he was due by Marcus Antonius, who was acting as executor and firmly keeping grip on the treasury. So, instead, Octavian seized the cash that was being held for the impending Eastern campaign and used it to rally Caesar's own veterans to his banner. He also borrowed heavily to personally pay for the bequests Caesar had left his soldiers and the public, which greatly increased his prestige in the city. Marcus Antonius, now between a rock and a hard place, and finding his support among the population evaporating, marched northwards with several legions, ostensibly to dislodge Decimus, but found himself now besieging a well-entrenched and stubborn foe. Now, as a private citizen, it was illegal for Octavian to have a personal army or to command a legion without the Senate's approval. So, with the usual wheeling and dealing, the Senate, who viewed Octavian as the lesser of two evils, and perhaps the more easy to manipulate owing to his age, appointed him extra-legally to the Senate, and hastily gave him full command of an entire army to rid them of Marcus Antonius, who was now himself declared a persona non grata, largely at the instigation of Cicero, who was now the chief puppet master in the Senate. It wasn't long before Marcus Antonius 
found himself sandwiched between Decimus forces and Octavians, and he was soon soundly defeated. The Senate, satisfied that they had dealt with Marcus Antonius, now turned on Octavian, appointing Decimus as supreme commander of the forces in Italy, and appointing Brutus and Crassus as consuls, as well as governors in the east, with full authority to raise taxes and form legions. But Cicero and his accomplices had grossly underestimated the loyalty of the troops to the young Octavian, who, for them, embodied the living legacy of Caesar. Decimus, meanwhile, struggled to overcome the stigma of being one of his assassins. Consequently, the eight legions stationed in Italia all defected to Octavian, and with both previous consuls having died in the fighting, Octavian now found himself in sole command of the entire armed forces in the region, and staring down the treacherous Senate with nobody to stand in his way. Decimus now also fled over the mountains with his remaining soldiers, hoping to link up with Brutus overland, but he was soon captured by chieftains loyal to Rome and executed before he could get there. Meanwhile, Marcus Antonius was far from finished and received support from Marcus Aemilius Lepidus, governor of Transalpine Gaul and Hispania Criteria. The two of them reached out to Octavian and they subsequently formed what is now known as the Second Triumvirate, controlling the entire western and central part of the Republic. Their primary goal was to avenge the murder of Caesar by eliminating all military resistance in the east and within the Senate. So, in echoes of Sulla, their agents swept through Rome and purged both the citizenry and the Senate, confiscating property and issuing summary executions without due process on all that came under suspicion. A third of senators and thousands of prominent Romans were killed and then they turned their sights on Brutus and Cassius, who watched the horror unfolding but were themselves hardly idle. They got busy raising legions and taxing their own territories and stories have come down to us of the brutal way in which they extracted the necessary funds. Suffice to say, his previous experience in debt collection meant that Brutus, as well as Cassius, went on a violent crowdfunding campaign, sacking and burning any cities that opposed their demands. And despite raising substantial amounts of cash in record time, as well as an army capable of reasonable resistance to the triumvirs, the soldiers were less experienced and now significantly less loyal. It's no surprise then that they were defeated at two engagements in the Battle of Philippi in 42 BC. Losses were heavy on both sides though, with many prominent Romans being killed, but eventually, seeing no chance of victory, Brutus retreated to some nearby hills, where he commended his companions for their support and loyalty and urged them now to save themselves, while he fell upon his own sword. Reports vary over what happened next, with some suggesting that Marcus Antonius, upon finding his body, had him wrapped in his finest purple robes, cremated with full honours and his ashes sent back to his mother in Rome. Others report that Octavian had his head cut off, 
to be displayed before a statue of Caesar back in the city, but that the head was lost overboard in a storm on the way back. In any case, it wasn't long before the triumvirate, having achieved its objectives, eliminated the last vestige of republican resistance in the feeble attempts by Cicero to keep the flame alive, and then, very quickly, turned on one another in yet another bloody civil war. This time, it would see Octavian emerge victorious, irrevocably heralding the death of the Republic and the emergence of Rome as an empire that would change the course of European history forever. So what of Brutus' ultimate legacy? It's clear that his image, obviously confused with his cousin Decimus, remained sullied by successive generations of tyrants and monarchs right down through the Middle Ages. Artists and writers such as Dante, desperate to impress their benefactors, portrayed Brutus in the same treacherous light as Judas Iscariot, in the deepest pit of hell being chewed up in the mouth of Satan, such that, even today, his name is synonymous with unexpected and unforgivable betrayal. There has been the occasional reappraisal by later writers such as Plutarch, whose dodgy hagiographical works nevertheless served as an inspiration for Shakespeare, who, like others during the Renaissance, began to recast Brutus as a sacrificial champion of liberty and republican idealism. Be patient till the last! Countrymen and lovers. Hear me for my cause and be silent that you may hear. Believe me for mine honor and have respect to mine honor that you may believe. Censure me in your wisdom and awake your senses that you may the better judge. If there be any in this assembly, any dear friend of Caesar's, to him I say that Brutus' love to Caesar was no less than his. If then that friend demand why Brutus rose against Caesar, this is my answer. Not that I loved Caesar less. But that I loved Rome more. Had you rather Caesar were living and die all slaves? Than that Caesar were dead to live all free men. No, no. As Caesar loved me, I weep for him. As he was fortunate, I rejoice at it. As he was valiant, I honor him. But as he was ambitious, I slew him. There is tears for his love. Joy for his fortune. Honor for his valor. And death for his ambition. Who is here so base that would be a bondman? If any, speak, for him have I offended. Who is here so rude that would not be a Roman? If any, speak, for him have I offended. Who is here so vile that will not love his country? If any, speak, for him have I offended. I pause for a reply. None, Brutus, none! <laughs> Then none have I offended. I have done no more to Caesar 
than you shall do to Brutus. The question of his death is enrolled in the capital. His glory not extenuated wherein he was worthy, nor his offenses enforced for which he suffered death. Here comes his body, mourned by Mark Antony, who though he had no hand in Caesar's death, shall receive the benefit of his dying, a place in the commonwealth, as which of you shall not. With this I depart, that as I slew my best lover for the good of Rome, I have the same dagger for myself, when it shall please my country to need my death. Live, Brutus! Live! Live! Yet, even Brutus' own contemporary Cicero, firmly counted among his allies, had mixed feelings about Brutus and referred to him later on as having the courage of a man but the brains of a child. It may be that Cicero's description refers to the narrow, myopic justification of republican idealism, but many today view it more cynically as simply the act of marginalised, aspiring mini-tyrants acting to restore their own oligarchy. Certainly, subsequent events clearly show that the whole system, based on slavery, aristocratic appropriation of common property, along with military adventurism, was far from what we would regard as a true democracy, and yet it formed the foundation of the entire civilization of the Western world. As a further aside, John Wilkes Booth, the actor, assassinating President Abraham Lincoln while yelling out Sic Semper Tyrannis, thus always to tyrants, was infused with Shakespearean admiration for Brutus. His own father was actually called Junius Brutus Wilkes, after all. So, in his own peculiar way, this ancient Roman even influenced the course of modern American history two millennia later. What he would have made of the American Civil War we can only guess. And yet, poor old Brutus was himself desperate to avoid a bloodbath in his own country by sparing the man that would seal his own fate just a few years later and go on to cause a civil war that was as bloody as any that had preceded it. If it was just about the money, Brutus was already way ahead of the curve. Both he and his cousin Decimus already had it better than most, and it's not obvious that he was in any way resentful of Caesar, unless we bring up his mother, and possibly sister. Would her love affair with Caesar be enough of a motivation for Brutus to risk his entire career and future? Probably not. Caesar certainly appears to have favoured Brutus because of his relationship with his mother, and Servilia was certainly very much in love and happy to remain his mistress. But kids often see such relationships differently. Perhaps Brutus viewed the affair as an ongoing humiliation, despite the material benefit. In any case, we should also remember that Brutus wore very heavily the cloak of stoic responsibility of an ancestor who killed his own sons out of devotion to the Republic. Few men in history have ever held the faith so firmly. It would be foolish to dismiss such a psychological burden as merely romantic nonsense at a time when reputation meant everything. 
Perhaps one thing we can say is that in the world of politics and spin, few players are ever what they're made out to be. Like us, they are subject to the harsh judgments of history, and the best we can do is perhaps be inspired by their virtues and chastened by their vices while we try to make sense of the world we live in. If Brutus teaches us anything, it is that the voice of conscience often speaks in riddles, and that none of us can hope to escape the drama of the moral dilemmas. If you enjoy this content, please take a moment to support my work by making a small donation through the links on the podcast website, or better still, by signing up as a Patreon supporter, where you can communicate with me directly, engage with the Heroes and Legends community, and get better insights and even involvement in my work and future episodes. A video montage of this podcast also appears on our YouTube Heroes and Legends documentary channel. Please feel free to visit, like and share, and as always, thanks for listening.